Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone out to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Today is Tuesday, February 16th, 2016, and my name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunava in Thornton, Colorado. Let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll read some liturgy tonight, and then we'll get started with tonight's study. Let's pray. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we thank you once again for bringing us together so that we can sit and we can study your words and that we can fellowship with one another and that we can grow together, that we can soak in your spirit and that we can sit and learn about the Messiah, Yeshua. Father, we thank you for giving us the challenge of studying your words in order to put them into our lives, in order to do them so that we may also be a witness to those around us. Lord, for indeed, we do not study for study's sake. We study because we want to be pleasing to you. We study because we want to turn away from sin. We study because we want to see Yeshua. We study because we want to be washed by the cleansing and the water of the word. And so for that reason, Lord, we seek to put to practice that which we learn. So give us an opportunity to put into reality the very words that we read. For that reason, Lord, we ask that you will superintend the words so that we can understand them a bit better. Lord, I know that we're not going to reach a perfection until we meet you. But until that time, Lord, we seek to avail ourselves by your truths so that we can um, be a, a better light, so that we can be uh, better um, kingdom participants and continuing to help bring about uh, a change in the lives of ourselves, our families, and those around us. Thank you for bringing the words of Galatians to our recollection. We thank you for blessing Apostle Paul so that he could write the words and that so he could, uh, with a passion, deliver them to us. And that your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, has preserved his letter for us to read these thousands of years later. Uh, thank you for everyone who is attending the class. Thank you for those who are uh, in the live class as well as those who are unable to make it week by week. We pray that you'll be with them as well as they're listening to the recordings after the fact. And lastly, Lord, be with me as a teacher, for I indeed don't have all the answers. And so I seek your assistance in bringing these words to the students. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. All right, uh, we are in, let's see, I think we're in week 17. Um, and as I mentioned, this is February 16th, 2016. We meet every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for our live internet study to the Book of Galatians. You're certain to, certainly welcome if you're not able to meet us. Uh, if you're not with us live tonight, you're certainly welcome to come out every um, Tuesday evening and join us. Um, go to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E. T-O-R-A-H. Tetzay Torah stands for the Torah shall go forth. And go to my website, and right along the very top, there should be some links up there. Find the one that says Galatians Commentary. Click on it, and just scroll down, and you'll find relevant information about the live Tuesday evening uh, internet study. The Torah study that I'm doing. The entire commentary, as updated as of this week, earlier this week, yes, I've been a busy beaver, Updated as of this week is available on the web. 
it's already swollen to about 137 pages. In, in one week's time, I added 15 pages. And so um, you can find the entire commentary there at my website, and you're certainly welcome to download via PDF, or you can just click on web versions and read them there online. But if not, just follow along with this live in the class, and I um, present just a chunk, a section each week, and we just kind of go through it. We meet for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks, and then we start a new semester with 10 weeks and meet for 10 weeks. So since we're in week 17, we're fastly, we're quickly approaching the end of our second semester. Let's read some liturgy this evening. I like to read a little bit of uh, scriptures, a scriptural selection out of the what we call Old Testament or the Tanakh, and then I read a selection out of the New Testament or the Apostolic Scriptures, however you'd like to refer to it. And then I like to read the corresponding Hebrew and Greek that goes along with those passages as best as I can approximate them. I'm neither a Hebrew nor Greek scholar. I'm just kind of stumbling along, just like most of you are, so bear with me as I make mistakes, okay? Let's read the passage that we've been using for this particular topic, and I'll introduce the topic after I read the liturgy. Um, let's read the passages that I've been selecting. I've been using Deuteronomy 6, since it's very familiar to us in Messianic circles, and I'm not just going to read the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. I'm actually going to start back um, in verse 1 and read through verse 9. So I'll read uh, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, and then I'd like to jump down and skip the middle section. Uh, then I'll read down to verse, uh, I'm sorry, I'll start in verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, and I'll skip down to start in verse 20 and read through verse 25. And that'll be our liturgy from the Tanakh section. And then we'll jump into some uh, New Testament readings. This is taken from the English Standard Version. So if you're in the class tonight, you can just look at the screen. Otherwise, turn in your Bible to uh, Deuteronomy 6. Starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Verse 3, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Verse 6, I, I suppose I should have said verse 5, which just starts with, you shall love the Lord. Uh, verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now let's jump down to verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Verse 22, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous, uh, grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Verse 23, And he brought us out from here that, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be our righteousness for us if we our, verse 25, I should say, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he commanded us. Okay, let's see if I can um, chart through some of the Hebrew of those same passages. Uh, if you're in the class with me, you'll notice on the screen I've got an interlinear pulled up like I've been doing usually. This means, um, let me pull out my little pointer. This means um, I'm going to start right about where the blue arrow is, where it says Vezot mitzvah. Hebrew reads right to left, so we'll be going in this direction. And for interlinear, we've got uh, transliteration above the Hebrew. Then we've got the Hebrew right there. 
Then in the red, we've got uh, a pony translation or word-for-word -word wooden translation. And then below, below that, the, the parts of speech of each word. So this is kind of nice. All right, so we'll leave the pointer there. Um, actually, let me get rid of the pointer because I need to be able to skip to the next page. All right, uh, Deuteronomy 6, let's start reading in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 9. I'll read a little slowly, and so that way you can follow along. If you do know Hebrew, you can follow along with me as best as you can. Verse 1 reads, V'zot ha-mitzvah ha-hukim v'ha-mishpatim asher tzivah Adonai Elohechem l'lamed etchem la'asot ba'eretz asher atem Overim Shema Larishta. Verse 2. Le Ma'an Tira et Adonai Elohecha Lishmor et Ko Hukotaiv Mishpotai Umitzvotaiv Asher Anuhi Mitzavecha Ata Vinka Uvein Binka Kol Yime Chayecha Ulma'an Ya arichun yamecha. Verse 3. Vashamata Yisrael Vashamarta La asot asher yitav lacha Vashir tirbun Miud ka asher diber Adonai Elohe avotecha Lach eret zavach chalav udvash. Verse 4. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Echad. Verse 5. Vahavta eight Adonai Elohecha, Bechol Levavcha, Vchol Nafshcha, Vchol Meudecha. Verse 6. Vahayu Hadbrim, Haile Asher, Anuchi, Mitzavcha, Hayom Al Levavecha. Verse 7. Vashinantam le vanecha. Vidiparta, bam, bishiptaka, bivetaka, vlektaka, vaderech, uvshachpaka, uvkumecha. Verse 8. Ukshartam le ot al yadecha, vahayu, le totafot bain enecha. Verse 9. Uktavtam al mezuzot, betaka, uvisharecha. And now let's skip through uh, a few verses. I want to just drop down to uh, pick up the reading again in verse 20. So those of you in the live class, look at my pointer. I'm over here on the right side of the page, starting in verse 20, and we'll keep reading our Hebrew liturgy. Verse 20 reads, Ki yish'alka vincha machar lemor ma ha'edot v'hakukim v'hamishpatim Asher tziva Adonai Elohinu et chem. Verse 21. Va amarta levincha. Avadim hayenu lefaro b'mitzrayim. Vyotzienu Adonai mimitzrayim b'yad chazaka. Verse 22. Vayitain Adonai oto. Umuftim gdolim, v'raim v'mitzraim, v'faro uchol beto le'einenu. Verse 23. Otanu hutzim misham l'ma'an havi. Otanu l'tet lanu et ha'eretz asher nishpa la'avotenu. Verse 24. Vayitzavenu Adonai la asot et kol hakukim haile ya le yire at Adonai, the yira at Adonai, et Adonai elochinu latov lanu kol hayamim la chayutenu kahayom haze. And the final verse 25. Utsadaka tihelanu ki nishmor la asot et kol hamitzvah. Hazot lifne Adonai Elohinu ka'asher tzivanu. Okay, that's our Deuteronomy passage. And before I read the Greek, the uh, New Testament and the Greek, let's go back and actually tell you why I read these passages. 
I'm entertaining the notion that the traditional Christian church, which supposes that ancient Israel kept the Torah for the supposed salvific benefits that it offered, I entertain the notion that that is an improper view of the motive that ancient Israel had when they kept the Torah. And the reason I believe it's an improper view of ancient Israel's motive is because as one reads through the Torah like I just did, and I selected this passage for a reason, as one reads through the passages of the Torah, we don't find any hint that Moses is telling Israel that if you keep these commandments that God will save you or that God will favor you. Now we do find that Moses says that if you keep these commandments that God will bless you. But what we must remind ourselves as Bible students is that there are essentially two levels to the commandments. I'm sorry, two levels to the covenants. The first first level would be described as the earthly level or the fleshly level or the temporary level. And covenant membership at this level entails blessings that are primarily uh, tied to this age. Um, blessings that are tied to temporary aspects of life. In other words, um, you're having your crops, having a good crop, or having health in your body. Um, things that are essentially meant for people who keep God's commandments, but not necessarily providing um, spiritual benefits that would carry over into the age to come or carry over into after they die. You understand what I'm saying? So, and there's nothing wrong with that because the Torah was designed to bless us in this life. So if we can begin to think of the two levels, this life is one level and the next life, and I don't mean reincarnation when I say the next life, not that nonsense. What I mean is the age to come, the olam haba, the... Uh, the age that follows this life, which in Christian needs we would say heaven, or we would at least call it the eternal age. So in Judaism, uh, I'm sorry, in the Bible, we have both views being described, and we have to remind ourselves whenever we see uh, commandments or, uh, or things that are being described by the text, we have to ask ourselves uh, which view, uh, which, which life is in view, which which context is it being uh, portrayed by the scriptures. And so as we read through this Deuteronomy passage, I believe that Moses is primarily describing blessings in this life. In other words, the covenant member of ancient Israel could simply walk into the commandments with a limited amount of love for God, a limited amount of faith for God, Now, which would be tragic, <clears throat> but that didn't change the fact that many people that um, follow after God don't actually find God the way God desires to be found. Rather, they have kind of a superficial, um, kind of a, um, they have a religious experience, but they don't really have a genuine um, relationship with God. And that's tragic. But nevertheless, God provides a limited amount of blessing for those who still keep his commandments. You could say the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. And there is a kind of a, a, a benevolent, uh, a general benevolence that's kind of slathered out upon anyone who will walk into his ways because the Torah is designed to be followed, and therefore, because it's primarily a, a covenant of obedience, then reward follows obedience. We could think of it this way. God punishes wickedness, but he rewards righteousness, even if that righteousness is on a limited um, level. In other words, even if it's just mere obedience from a childlike perspective. So that's why I read the Deuteronomy passage, for us to understand that the passage isn't really describing eternal life in, in, um, in reward for keeping the commandments. And so if you read through the passage with that idea in view, with, from the normative sense, you'll see that the blessing is commanded right after, the, the blessing or the reward is actually given in the passage, where Moses says, these are the commandments and the statutes in verse 1. Uh, verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son by keeping all the statutes and commandments, which I command you. And then we see that in verse 3, we start to see some of the rewards uh, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So primarily, one of the um, rewards that is, that is uh, offered to Israel as they would become obedient to God's words and God's ways is that they would be brought into a land and that they would prosper in that land and that would, they would multiply greatly and that they would have long life. And so you, we could say, generally speaking, that um, living in the, the, the blessing of the land, that is to say from the perspective of Israel who was not yet in the land when these words were given, the blessing of coming into the land, entering into the land, and dwelling in the land, and 
prospering the land, you know, multiplying greatly, having good offspring, having their cattle multiply, having their flocks, I'm sorry, their um their crops multiply, etc., etc. So those were part of the um the reward that was put in front of Israel if they would just walk into his commandments. And notice that God is really not particularly at this point in time saying, if you will keep my commandments, I will save you personally and corporately as a people. Notice that's not in view. Primarily, these are corporate blessings that are tied to corporate obedience. This is where we're starting to, beginning to introduce this concept known as covenantal nomism. We're going to hit that in our section four when we get to it in our commentary. But suffice to say, for now, I want you, the students, to begin to see that the Torah was not really presented to Israel as a, as a, a salvific reward. What I mean when I say salvific, I mean... God wasn't saying, if you keep my commandments, I will save you. So you begin to see that this, this unfair caricature that the church uh, portrays ancient Israel in is really just that. It's unfair. It's unfair to say that Israel was preoccupied with becoming saved in order to keep the commandments. And so when we get to the Apostle Paul and we start reading through the book of Galatians, and we begin to try and figure out what Paul means by works of the law, and we suppose we assume that works of law means works done in obedience to the commandment, then when Paul says that no man is justified by keeping the by works of law, if we think that Paul is saying that no man is justified, which equals saved, by keeping the law, which means keeping the Torah, well then we've fallen into the trap of inaccurately and unfairly portraying Israel's ancient Israel's motives behind trying to keep the Torah again. You understand? So we need to at least give ancient Israel the benefit of the doubt that they read through their scriptures the way that I'm reading through them with you today. And how would that be? That they read them and understood that there was a that there were temporal blessings that were attached to keeping the commandments. And to be sure, I read through verses 20 through 25. This is interesting because in verse uh, 20 down here, we have Moses uh, describing a hypothetical situation in the future where Israel is dwelling safely in the land. And the children of the parents who entered in turn to the parents and begin to ask them, what is the meaning of these commandments? And indeed, interestingly enough, this would be the perfect place for Moses to tell us, right? Moses, remember, he's writing under the power of the Holy Spirit. So, and God, knowing the future from the past, he knows the end from the beginning, wouldn't you think that if the commandments were given in order to provide salvation to the person who walks in them, such as the Christian church likes to suppose that ancient Israel thought, wouldn't you imagine that if that were the case, that when Moses describes his hypothetical son in verse 20 that says, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God commanded you? Don't you think that Moses in the following few verses would answer something like, well, the meaning of these verses are that if you keep, the meaning of these uh, commandments are that if you keep them, that God will save you, that God will bring you into a right relationship with him, that God will in fact make you into a righteous person, and that you in fact will enter into the community uh, as a righteous person. Don't you think something would have been described here? But we don't find that. Instead, what Moses describes, again, is this limited slash temporal aspect of, of blessing, that is, blessing in this life, which is not a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that blessing in this life is bad. Rather, I'm not trying to set up a false dichotomy between blessing now and blessing later, and the blessing later being the salvation blessing that we inherit in heaven or the age to come. Rather, what I'm trying to set up is a proper comparison between not bad versus good, but good versus better. So it's good to be blessed now, even if you don't know the Lord in your heart, even if you don't know Yeshua, Jesus, as your Savior. It's still good to be blessed, right? It's still good to have uh, multiplied um, cattle, multiplied offspring, um, health in your bones, etc. Those are good things to have. And who doesn't seek after those things? So those are good things to have, and God's going to provide those for the covenant members. Because covenant membership in ancient Israel existed on two levels. So it's good to be a, a a temporal covenant member. Temporal meaning when you die, you lose your covenant membership because nothing follows you into eternity. But it's better, remember, good versus better, it's better to actually have lasting covenant membership. And that's the kind of covenant membership where you're blessed both in this life and you're blessed in the life to come, meaning 
You're blessed when you um, wake up in eternity and greet God and know that your sins are forgiven and live eternally with Yeshua. That's the type of blessing that I mean by the age to come or the blessing in eternity. So what does Moses say in verse 21 and following? Then you are to say to your son, these are the parents answering the children, and, and Moses goes on to describe the former uh, slavery in Egypt under the Pharaoh and how the Lord delivered them and showed them signs and wonders. And then in verse 23, God brought them out from there. So he brought them out to bring them into the land. That's part of the blessing. This is part of the answer to the son asking, what's the meaning of these testimonies? And God brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the land to give them the land they swore to the fathers. And then in verse 24, God then commanded us to do all these statutes. Why? Look at verse 24. To fear the Lord our God for our good always. Right? Now Moses is describing the motive, that is the fear of the Lord. What do we read in Psalm 110? Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we have Moses saying that we need to fear the Lord. And then, as we continue in verse 24, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. So we see that part of the reward of keeping Torah for ancient Israel was that God, for his part, would preserve them and keep them alive as they are to this day. And then verse 25, here's the kicker. And it will be righteousness. It will be righteousness for us. I apologize if there's some... Uh, audio technical, some technical difficulties here. My, my uh, power cord got in the way there. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Now, isn't that interesting? This is a whole sermon in and of itself, y'all. Verse 25, it will be righteousness. It's funny because Paul says that by the works of the law, no flesh will be counted as righteous. I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said. So, Let's jump over into some uh, some um, some of the uh, New Testament passages and see if we can put this together. We're going to have to really ask ourselves this question: What is the righteousness that Moses is describing in verse twenty-five? I'll just tell you up front because I know I don't want you to leave you guessing. Moses isn't describing a righteousness that would lead to salvation when he says it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord God as He commanded us. The righteousness that is described by the law here, the righteousness that is demonstrated by the keeping of the commandment, is in fact a limited righteousness. It's just a right. It's it's it is um, it is a moral way of living. It is a right lifestyle that is described by covenant members. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are automatically saved if they walk into the commandment and take on the righteousness. But what I'm trying to say is that there is a righteousness that is conferred to the person who is a covenant keeper, even at a limited level, even on an earthly level, even on the flesh level, as we could say. When I say fleshly, I mean simply the person who is not yet graduated to genuine faith in God, viz. genuine faith in Jesus. In other words, a Jewish person who has who believes that he has faith in God, even if he rejects Yeshua, there is a, a measure of right, excuse me, a measure of righteousness that God confers upon him based on his participation in the covenant, based on his his obedience to the commandment, based on his what we could say childlike faith in God, even if it has not yet graduated or I say matriculated and and uh, given way to genuine faith in God, which would be equated with genuine faith in the Messiah. Because in fact, you cannot have genuine faith in Messiah unless you have genuine faith in God. The two are one and the same. And therefore, we know when your eyes are opened to the Messiah, when the Spirit opens your eyes to see Jesus in the text, then and only then does your genuine and lasting relationship with God actually begin. Until that happens, um, your your relationship with God is kind of on borrowed time. You know what I'm saying? Um, you'll 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 enter into eternity and you'll meet God on Judgment Day. And if you have not accepted Yeshua, then unfortunately your destination is not going to be heaven and eternity with God. Your destination will be the other place, right? So um, that's what I that's what I mean by um, the righteousness that's conferred by the Torah. It's not. It's not wrong to say that the Torah offers this righteousness because we're reading it right here in verse 25 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. What I also want to add is that when Moses is describing the righteousness of the Torah, um, 
he is envisioning that the the covenant um, responsibilities that God is imposing upon the people of Israel because they are his redeemed people. Uh, righteousness is not just the status that God confers upon a person who keep walks into his Torah, but righteousness is actually the description of the merit or the reward that God extends to the people who are in fact covenant keepers. You know what I'm saying? So God is saying, you keep my commandments and I will bless you. I will uh, prosper you. I will multiply your seed. I will make sure that your cattle are healthy. I'll make sure that your crops spring up, things like that, because the Torah is a prid quo pro covenant. You do for me and I'll do for you. Um, hide these words in my heart and fear me and learn to walk in my ways and it will go well for you. It will do, it will, it will be your righteousness. It will be, uh, a benefit to you is what I'm trying to say that we could substitute the word righteousness for benefit. There is a benefit. There is a reward. Um, that's what I mean by the righteousness. And what's interesting about this phrase righteousness is if we, um, if we jump all the way over to the New Testament book of Romans, Paul's, uh, letter to the Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 5, it says, quote, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, isn't that interesting? Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. What is the righteousness of the law? Well, we're reading about it right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25. The righteousness of the law is this limited covenant membership package that is extended to covenant members who hide God's word in their heart, who learn to fear the Lord, and who in turn learn to live obediently to the covenant that God spells out with them as covenant members. And as a result, there is a there is a a, um, a blessing that's uh, offered to them. There is a reward that is put in front of them based on the limited covenant membership that they are participating in. And therefore, the righteousness is that God confers upon them the status of a, we could say, a righteous covenant member, albeit, don't get confused, from a limited covenant membership, meaning their covenant membership in Israel will expire at the moment of death and nothing carries over into the age to come or carries over into the Olam Haba. So, uh, in conclusion to our discussion about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25, in agreement with the righteousness that Moses writes about, uh, that Paul recognizes here in Romans uh, 10.5, we see that there is a righteousness, and it's not the righteousness that grants you salvation. It's not the great righteousness with the reward of um, a place in the age to come. Rather, it is the lifestyle of an ex of an, of, of an ex of an existing covenant member that God expects you to walk into. That's why in uh, the the um, Romans passage, um, Paul actually alludes to the verse in Leviticus where he says that the person who, uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me read the verse again. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, and I would say that, that um, Paul is probably referencing or hinting at the Deuteronomy 6.25 passage. But then the second half of the passage says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And we know that that is a, uh, probably a reference to the person who does them shall live by them is a reference to our, our passage in Leviticus, our familiar passage. Um, Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Meaning, as a person does them, uh, his life will be characterized by them. If a person does them, then his life will be characterized, and he shall find um, uh, good life, uh, plentiful life, blessing in them. If a person does them, he'll live by them. He'll govern his life by them. And I, for my part, God speaking, will uh, extend the blessing to him, meaning I'll extend not only the blessing, but I will. he will find his place among the righteous, uh, those who live in a limited righteous uh, um capacity. So, hope that helps to explain Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, verse 25 a little better. So, with that in view, let's jump over to Galatians chapter 3, and this is the passage I have chosen for our New Testament section. I don't think I've read this before yet, um, but it's a good passage because it helps us to begin to develop the context of what was on Paul's mind as, they begin to, as Paul began to wonder, what 
were the Galatians falling for? What were his Christian readers beginning to um, entertain when it comes to this other gospel, when it comes to this um, supposed uh, righteousness that was being offered by Paul's detractors? So Galatians chapter 3, this is verses 1 through, I just want to read the verses 1 through 5, even though on your screen it shows 1 through 6, but let's just read 1 through 5. Um, this is the ESV again. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse, and then I, I want to stop there. I don't want to read verse 6. Now, let me tell you why I picked this passage before I actually go read the Greek. The reason I picked this passage is because, uh, number one, we're going to be uh, going back and revisiting this topic called works of law in my section to the Galatians commentary. It's section three. Works of law, part one, proselyte conversion, understanding the background. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight, if I can get to it. And the reason we're going to revisit this, we were supposed to actually move on to covenantal nomism in section 4. But the reason we're going backwards is because um, I sat down last week and um, I really felt that I needed to uh, re-explain, re uh, rehash this idea of works of law in my one of the primary um, theses, one, one of the primary points of my thesis that uh, works of law doesn't necessarily simply mean works done in obedience to the Torah for the sake of becoming saved. I don't, and that's that's the viewpoint that the church holds, and they're welcome to hold that view, but I think it sets up a false conclusion which leads the Bible reader to the incorrect conclusion that because the works of law can't save an individual, then therefore the works of law are essentially meaningless to the average Christian. And essentially that's the position that the historic Christian church has taken down for the last, say, 2,000 years or so, particularly when it comes to Martin Luther's views uh, put forth uh, by the Protestant Reformation. So we describe this view that I'm, um, uh, we, we label this view that I'm describing as essentially Lutheran Paul or Reformation Paul. And that is the understanding that works of the law refers to a works righteousness or merit theology, and that the conclusion to Paul's warning against trying to keep the Torah for meritorious purposes, the conclusion in that is that we jettison the law, that we get rid of the law, that we pitch it, that we they move it out of our communities, and we instead cast ourselves upon the upon the uh, law of Christ. And essentially, that's what has happened in the Christian churches, right? The Christian communities have, for the most part, rejected the ceremonial and civil parts of the law, the parts that that Calvin, John Calvin. Uh, differentiates those three parts to the law, the three uses of the law, right? The moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. Supposedly, I, I don't think that the law can be divided that way, but let's just entertain that notion for a moment. So, in those three categories, we have moral, we have ceremonial, we have civil. Most people who call themselves Christians and the, that are Gentiles would agree and affirm the moral, but they would uh, essentially agree with and affirm uh, the moral as still applicable, uh, the the so-called third use of the law, I believe, but they would um, reject and not um, accept what we would what they describe as the ceremonial and the civil. In a word, uh, seventh day Sabbath, keeping kosher, um, wearing tzitzit, mezuzah, keeping the festivals. These things all become relegated to ceremony and civil, and they get thrown out. They get jettisoned so that your average Christian doesn't concern himself with these things that appear to be Jewish, that appear to be ceremonies, that appear to have been relaxed in Christ, done away with by Jesus' atonement, um, and for sure uh, cautioned against by the Apostle Paul, or so it seems. So all of that is wrapped up in our, our the beginning of where we start to understand and interpret works of the law. So the reason I chose this passage in Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5, is because this is the first time in the book of Galatians that we, I'm sorry, this is the second time in the book of Galatians that we encounter this phrase, works of law, ergonamu is the Greek. And uh, ergonamu 
is first shows up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. It shows up three times in one verse, one pasuk. And I didn't read that verse. We, we've studied that in the past. I, I, I switched over to Galatians chapter 3 because Paul is beginning to ask these his readers, the readers to his letter, Did, do you think God blessed you because of works of law or because of hearing with faith? Did you begin in the Spirit and now are being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things? In vain, if it was indeed in vain, does he supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you by works of the law, this ergonamu, or by hearing with faith? And so there, Paul, of course, knows the answer to his questions, but he's trying to shock his readers into some sense of reality. And so if we begin to exegete this passage with the understanding that works of the law likely doesn't, doesn't woodenly mean or doesn't simplistically mean works done in obedience to the Torah, but rather, in fact, describes some other aspect of the sociological, theological um, ramifications of existing as a covenant member in ancient Israel, then I think we're going to begin to give the book of Galatians and indeed the passages that use the phrase works of law, I think we're going to begin to give them a more proper historical context from which to work with. And in a word, what I believe is that works of law doesn't necessarily mean Exactly what the church says, where it just woodenly means keeping the Torah for the purpose of being saved. Remember, we just read the Deuteronomy passage, and we don't find Moses saying that, hey, Israel, you better keep the Torah if you want to be saved, right? if I could just humorously uh, distill it to that statement. Instead, um, we find something a little different. So let's read for our liturgy real quick. This is really long, right? It's like 40 minutes into the commentary, and I'm still on the liturgy. Uh, my goodness, Ariel, let's see if we can accelerate this a little bit. Let's read the um, uh, Greek portion, the Greek uh, counterpart to that. Of course, Greek reads left to right just like English. So if you're following along with me in the, on the live screen, you'll see I'm going to start over here on the left with O Anoitoi Galatai. Um, and again, as with the Hebrew, uh, the way this interlinear works is from top to bottom, there's some, there's a transliterate, well, up, up top there's the Strong's number, and then there's the transliteration uh, just below that. Then we have the Greek text just below that. And then below that in the red font, uh, we have the, uh, the wooden translation. Below that, the word for word. And then below that, we have the part of speech. So let's read through the Greek here, those first, the same five verses. And as with Hebrew, I apologize if I stumble through some of this. Uh, these are not my native languages. So I'm just trying the best I can, okay? So let's read the Greek. Let me get that pointer out of the way. Um, the Greek reads, O anoitoi galatai, tishumas ebaskanen, te aletheia me pethesthai, hois kat aphthalmus, Jesus Christos proegrafe estarumanas. And that's a question, meaning, um, uh, Paul's asking, who has bewitched you? Right? That's his question. Verse 2. Uh, tuto, tuto, let's start over. Tuto manan thelo mathen af human ex ergonamu to, I'm sorry, top numa labete e ex aques pistios? Another question. That's verse 2. Verse 3. Hutas anoitoi este en arx emanoi pnumati nun sarki epiteleste? Epiteleste? Again, another question. And let's drop down to verse 4. Dosauta epatete, let's try that again. Epatete eke, ege kai eke, that's verse 4. And verse 5. Ho un epikoregon, human dopenuma kai en ergon, dunames in human ex ergonamu, e ex aquis pistios. And that'll be the end of our liturgy for the Greek. Now, it's interesting, um, if you're looking at the uh, Greek that I've got pulled up in front of you, if you're in the live class, uh, you'll see works of the law is this phrase right here, ergon namu, right? Ergon is what we say works in plural. Ergon might be work if we were to just throw it back into singular. So we got ergon, which is translated works. Namu, which is of law. Notice it doesn't say it works of the law. Um, and yet that's basically how most translations will um, 
will interpret it. They'll put they'll they'll add the article there, the even though it's not really in the Greek. Uh, but that's okay because actually the article does show up in the singular when we're talking about work of the law, uh, ergon tunamu or something like that, uh, shows up in Romans chapter two. And actually, we're going to get to that tonight if I can. But the point I'm trying to make in this particular passage, let me jump back over to the ESV, is that Paul is seeing that there is this dichotomy. There's this confusion that has been introduced into his Galatian Christians community. And I say Christian there because they believe in Christ. Both Jew and Gentile who come to a knowledge of Christ can still be labeled as Christian. Um, so his Christian communities have being, are being poisoned by this other gospel, right? This, this, this false gospel that works of the law is what matters most and that faith in Christ should be downplayed. Not that faith in Christ should be absent but yet it seems like his detractors, which we'll call the influencers, some people call them the agitators, some people call them the Judaizers. I don't really like the term Judaizer because I think that is a pejorative, uh, I think it's more or less a racial epithet myself. And being Jewish, I, I'm, I'm offended by the phrase Judaizer. And I'll tell you why a little later. But for now, I call Paul's detractors, the, the Paul's opponents, I call them um, influencers because I think they're people who are trying to influence his community. Um, other people call them agitators based on a popular translation of the of a verse that we're going to read here later on. Um, those who are agitating the Galatians, those who are trying to upset them with their gospel. So we could call them either agitators. That's that's the name you're going to find in most Christian commentators is agitators or Judaizers. Uh, but if you're reading through many of the new perspective reader uh, authors like say Mark Nanoffs, E. P. Sanders, James D. G. Dunn, uh, Tim Haig, people who don't really espouse to the traditional Lutheran reading of Paul, people who are trying to go with a better reading of Paul, a more accurate reading of Paul. Uh, I, I count myself in that camp. We're going to avoid the phrase Judaizer, and we're going to go with something like influencer or agitator, something like that. So um, what Paul is basically saying in this verse is, or in this passage, is he's wanting to know, he's wanting to ask the Galatians, <clears throat> did God send his spirit among you because you were a, covenant members and kept the Torah, or B, because you placed your faith in Jesus. And when I say covenant members and kept the Torah, I believe that there's something in the passage that we don't readily see at first reading. And that is that the Gentiles in Paul's day were being forced to undergo conversion to become legally recognized Jews who were then subsequently given the Torah, which would be the works of the law, um, were subsequently given the works of the law, which would be the, the covenant package that entailed um, being faithful to the Torah as a community. So what I'm saying is that works of the law includes the, the prerequisite to become Jewish. And that's the part that I think many Christian commentators seem to downplay. I don't, I don't, I don't think that they miss it altogether. Rather, the reason I say they downplay it is because they, they make the villain out to be the, the keeping of the Torah, works of law, which is how it's translated, uh, keeping Torah in many versions. Rather than saying works of law, some verses simply just translate it as obedience to the law. And it seems to be that this false dichotomy, I'm sorry, not false dichotomy, this false um, caricature is painted by the Christian church where keeping the law is a bad thing. And yet, how can it be a bad thing when we just read verses, passages like Deuteronomy, where keeping the Torah is something that God wants to do so that he can bless you? Over and over again, if you read through the Tanakh, the Old Testament, repeatedly God is telling, instructing Israel to, to love him with all their heart, soul, and strength, like we read in the Deuteronomy chapter 6, for the purpose of walking in his ways, for the purpose of being becoming a blessed people group. So we have God telling Israel, love me with all your heart, soul, and mind, fear me, Keep my commandments, and I, in turn, will bless you. And yet we have New Testament believers being taught by seminaries and by pastors who come out of those seminaries that if you keep the Torah, that you're somehow cursed, that God doesn't want you to keep the Torah anymore, that it's been done away with in Jesus. I think that's a ploy of the adversary myself. Not only is it inaccurate from a biblical perspective, it is actually demonic. It is demonic, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because I'm, I'm so bold to say that because I think it's true. I think the devil planted the lie 2,000 years ago into the minds of the, of the Greek um, church leaders who were tr seeking a way to divorce themselves from their Jewish affiliation 
to basically create their own counterpart group called Christianity, a counterpart to the Jewish um, communities that they saw back then. And don't don't get me wrong, the Jewish community struck first. But the point I'm trying to make is that we had a Christianity who sought to divorce herself from her Jewish cradle. And in that divorce, she, she decided to distance herself not only from things that made her look Jewish if she walked in them, such as the ceremonies of Sabbath and, and kosher and things like that, circumcision. But she also, this new Christian group, sought to distance herself from the Torah that was given to Israel. And in doing so, she created a new group called the church, and uh, or she tried to recognize that she was a new group called the church. In reality, she didn't really create the church. That's, that's God's creation. But in this perverted view of the church, we ended up with a people group who was opposed to the people of Israel. And basically, supersessionism and replacement theology are the seeds of the adversary. They are the seeds of the devil. Because they seek to uproot the uh, Israel's place among the covenants, they seek to uproot the Jewish people's promises that God gave to them so long ago. So let me get off my preaching box for a moment and see if I can get back into my commentary. I've got about 10 minutes left, and I want to see if I can begin to entertain this notion of where I'm going to go in my commentary. I want to actually begin to um, look at... Um, I want to actually begin to uh, look at the commentary. Let me see if I can bring it into the uh, into the uh, room here. Uh, Works of the Law, Part 1, Understanding Proselyte Conversion, Understanding the Background. And what I wanted to do, I don't think I'm going to get to this week, but I wanted to actually start reading through, say, Romans chapters 2 and 3 with the... Uh, with the idea that works of law doesn't necessarily have to mean mere obedience to the commandment, but that it in fact describes a sociological phenomenon that forces Gentiles to become Jews before they can keep the Torah with the ostensible sake of becoming um, and maintaining their covenant membership. And some of you who are listening to my commentaries are probably thinking, gosh, Ariel, why do you have to make it so convoluted? I read to the Bible, this is, this is a, this is a, a, um, this is a common objection that I hear all the time. I read through the Bible. This is my my supposed. Um, um, this is like my imaginary opponent talking to me through email. I read through the read through the Bible when Paul says it's not by the works of the law that we're made righteous, but by faith in Christ. It seems to make sense to me. Works of the law can't save you because if you keep the Torah, no one can keep it perfectly. If you try to keep the Torah, no one can. Number one, no one can keep it perfectly, and number two, it's not by keeping the law that God makes us righteous in His eyes. Instead. God saves us by faith in Christ. And given that simplistic caricature that I just described by my imaginary opponent, I have to somewhat applaud their simplistic approach, because from a general perspective, it's true. God doesn't bring us into the status of righteous if we're saying that righteous is a salvific righteousness. God doesn't merely bring us into salvation righteousness by keeping the law, and he doesn't bring us, certainly doesn't bring us into salvation righteousness by being Jewish. So either way, Paul would oppose either method of trying to become righteous if it's not rooted in the finished work of Christ. Amen? So for that reason, I would agree. I would agree simpli somewhat from, um, with the simplistic caricature that's portrayed by much of historic Christianity. But if we, are, if we, if we wish to begin to give the Bible its proper historical and social context— in which it was written 2,000 years ago, and, and also begin to allow the New Testament to make sense within the context of the Old Testament. In other words, uh, over and over again, God tells Israel to keep the law so that they can be blessed. Keep the law, and God will write his laws on their heart so, they, so that they can walk in his ways. Israel, I want you to keep the law. If we begin to understand that the context of the Old Testament frames the understanding of the New Testament, then we can't possibly have Paul disparaging Torah observance in the New Testament. We couldn't possibly or likely have Paul up, trying to uproot Torah obedience among his uh, Christian readers in the book of Galatians because that would disagree with the theology of the Old Testament. Do you understand what I'm saying? So for that reason, let me read at least the first par few paragraphs in my um, commentary here. And then perhaps next week I think we'll try and turn to... Um, an exegetical look at, say, Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3. In other words, I'm going to take my understanding of works of law, 
And when I say mine, I don't mean that I'm the only one who holds this view. Most of those other authors that I mentioned, uh, James D.G. Dunn, E.P. Sanders, Mark, San Mark Nanos, um, uh, Tim Haig, N.T. Wright, some of these other uh, well-meaning scholars that have, are, are miles ahead of me when it comes to, to scholarship, um, they also do not hold to more or less the traditional reading of Paul, where the Lutheran perspective is that Paul is trying to basically do away with the Torah, uproot the Torah. Um, I don't hold to that view. I, I'm, I'm categorically opposed to a view that teaches that the law is done away with in Christ, that we don't have to worry about the ceremonies, that we don't have to concern ourselves with Sabbath, that we don't have to keep kosher, that we don't have to uh, circumcise our children, things like that. I'm categorically opposed to that particular interpretation and application of Paul's writings. So um, let me read just these first two commentaries, and then I will... Um, bring the teaching tonight to a close, and then I'll leave the chat room open for those of you who are with me in a live class, and I will entertain questions and comments. So let me just kind of break the ground on reading this. I rewrote this. I rewrote section three, and that's why I revised it. And uh, much of the 15 pages that I added over the last week, much of it is right here in section three, because this is essentially basically the heart of my understanding of the book of Galatians is Paul's um, meaning of his phrase, works of law, and his application. It forms the heart of my theology uh, and application towards uh, the book of Galatians. Um, that, along with uh, understanding what righteousness means in Paul. Uh, let me read a little bit of my commentary. In this section, I will begin to demonstrate how our discussion about circumcision in the first two sections of this commentary, and Shaul's phrase, works of the law, are to alternately works of law, actually work in tandem with one another. My understanding of the phrase works of the law in conjunction with my convictions about the relevance of Torah in the lives of Gentile Christians occupies a central place in my interpretation and application of the book of Galatians. For that reason, these next two sections on works of the law will therefore appear much longer than other topical sections in my commentary. Let's read the second uh, uh, paragraph as well. The book of Galatians contains a few technical terms and phrases that make it a bit more difficult for the average Bible student to understand from a casual reading perspective. I believe the term circumcision is one of those terms. I also believe works of the law is one of those terms. I, uh, to be sure, a best practices hermeneutic will seek to uncover the historical, grammatical, social, and linguistic contexts of the text in question before attempting to apply a practical application. You understand what I'm saying? So let's stop there. We'll just uh, entertain those first few um, paragraphs. Uh, next week, we'll just pick up with, this, with the third paragraph about it's no secret that God commanded Israel, etc., etc. And ho hopefully what I'll begin to do is begin to show you that if we paint works of the law, this phrase in Paul, if we paint this out to be Paul saying that the Gentile Christians were hoping to keep Torah so that they could become righteous in God, and we describe or understand the righteousness as a salvific righteousness, then essentially what, we, what we're saying is that the phrase works of law means keeping the Torah for the ostensible sake of becoming saved. In other words, keep the commandments and you will be saved. And because Paul is going to disagree with that false theology that you can't keep the, keep the commandments to be saved. Paul needs to write to his Galatian readers that instead of casting your faith on commandment keeping, you need to cast your faith on Jesus Christ. And again, please don't misunderstand me as Bible students. Please hear me out. I'm not saying that I disagree with the general perspective of that theological approach, right? I'm not saying that I believe that keeping the commandments will save you, and therefore I, I'm not saying I disagree with the traditional view of Paul simply because I think that keeping commandments will save you. No, no, no. May it never be. Perish the thought. What I'm simply trying to say is that I don't think Paul would need to write that because I don't think the people of Galatians were thinking that. You understand? I don't think that was their preoccupation. <clears throat> I don't think that was their motive for keeping Torah. Instead, their motive for keeping Torah was maintenance of an existing membership that they gained when they became proselytes. That's what I'm trying to say. And the reason I think that's very important for our study in the book of Galatians is because of the ramifications that it has towards our interpretation, I'm sorry, 
the ramifications that it has towards our practical application from a 21st century perspective. And what are those ramifications? I'll just conclude with this. Most Christians, and I'm not picking on most Christians, I'm, I simply have to let the description fit where where it where it fits the most, and that is the bulk of Christianity, the the prevailing Christian view, as I would say, is that we don't have to concern ourselves with keeping the Torah anymore because we're not saved by keeping the Torah, we're saved by Christ, and therefore our application of Paul's warning against works of the Torah, or works of the law, is that our conclusion is that as Christians, we don't have to keep the Torah, the ceremonies at all. And I'm afraid that is an incorrect conclusion because it 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 is opposed. It's it it um what's the phrase I'm you I want to say it disagrees with the Old Testament itself. It disagrees with the Tanakh. And in Paul's day, there was no New Testament written at the time that Paul wrote the Book of Galatians. What did he write the Book of Galatians in say the 50s? Right around 55, maybe as early as uh, mid 40s, but sometime within that say five. Uh, five-year window between, say, 47 and 55 or something like that, he wrote the book of Galatians. And then he wrote the book of Romans about two to three years later or so. Most scholars place the dates of Galatians and Romans um, uh, around those times. Galatians around 55, that's, that's around the date that I put, and Romans around, say, 57 or something like that. And um, either way, the, 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 the Gospels weren't even written yet. So we can't have Paul circulating a letter among the communities in, in early Israel where he's um, um, teaching everyone that they no longer have to concern themselves with the precepts of the Torah when, in fact, those were the only scriptures available to them. How were they live? How were they to conduct their lives righteously? Remember Deuteronomy 6, verse 25, all over again? How were they to conduct their lives in a righteous fashion? How were they to walk in a way that was pleasing to God if there was no scripture to guide them. So you see, it becomes important for us to begin to rethink our understanding of works of the law and then our interpretation and application of works of law uh, with the conclusion that the historic Christianity is presenting to us today. So with that, it's top of the hour. I'll go ahead and close down the commentary. We didn't get very far as usual. Um, I'll see if I can do a better job of that in the future, so you'll have to um, forgive me. But now that you know where we're headed next week in week 18, I think what we'll do is we'll just uh, hit the ground running next week with our liturgy, and then we'll go straight into uh, some of the commentary, uh, part three here, works of law, part one, we'll, we'll, um, section three, I should say. We'll, we'll just go straight into that, and then um, I'm telling you what we're gonna uh, what we're gonna do next week. So you can, I hope you'll attend. What we're gonna do is uh, next week we will, for about the first half hour of our hour that we meet, we will uh, look at the commentary, and then for the second half of the hour, for for about 30 minutes, I'm going to exegete Romans chapter two and Romans chapter three with the understanding of works of law as I understand it. In other words. I want to begin to show the students that my my um, my understanding or persuasion of works of law as including the proselyte ceremony, and then works of law as the attendant um, commandment keeping done for the ostensible sake of maintaining covenant membership. I'm going to show you how I believe that fits better with the context of Paul's writings, and to do it, I'm going to work from Romans instead of working from Galatians, as if that makes any sense. All right, so hope you can join me next week where we actually exegete Romans chapters 2 and 3 right here in our commentary to exegeting Galatians. Let's close in prayer and then stay with me in the class and I'll, I'll uh, uh, entertain questions and comments from the students in the live chat, okay? Let's pray. Abba, I bless your name and I thank you for the opportunity to sit before the students once again. Lord, I realize that it is an awesome responsibility to be able to share the words as best as I understand them. So for that reason, Lord, I pray that what I've said today, if there be any truth, if there be any merit to what I've said, let those words sink in deep with the listeners. And that parts that where I was just foolish, where I was just speaking my own thoughts, where I was just um, uh, not uh, keeping in step with the Spirit, Lord, let those parts fall to the side and let let them let the students not remember those. But Lord, let us 
Let us continue to press in deep. Let us begin to press in uh, into your word so that we can uh, be a people that are pleasing to you, so that we can be a people that bless your name, a people that uphold your kingdom, a, a, a people that uh, demonstrate our love for the master and our loyalty and devotion to Jesus as the Christ. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to um, to study along with the students. Um, I thank you that you have um, shared, uh, I'm sorry, that you have given me the opportunity to share what I feel is a better historical uh, and uh, sociological understanding of the book of Galatians. And I pray that my um, explanation will go a long way towards practical application as well. Um, continue to bless us, Lord. Heal us that we may be healed. Uh, give us a, a witness, Lord. Give us, give us the opportunity to share our testimony with our friends, with our family members, with our co-workers, with those that we, would might, that we might meet on the street. Lord, we want to be witnesses. We want to be ambassadors for you. And so for that reason, we ask that you will continue to bless us and raise us up. Uh, go with us this week. Bring us back together next week, ready, refreshed, prepared to study once again. And we'll be careful, Lord, as in always, to give you the praise in these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.